We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 10 again tonight. Acts chapter 10, if you would take your copy of God's Word and open the pages there to the 10th chapter in Acts. We've been here now for, I think, for maybe four weeks, but I'm calling this part four because I couldn't uh, um, find part zero or whatever it was. <laughs> it was uh, one of those weeks that we had a shortened time or something. So... Um, we're in Acts chapter 10, last section of the chapter. Let me just read. Uh, Peter gives the gospel to these people in Cornelius's home. It says he opens his mouth and says, in, in truth, verse 34, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And then he goes on and talks about what God did in sending Christ into the Jewish nation and what he was preaching, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, and then he is Lord of all, just has an interjection that stands alone. We spent some time thinking about his lordship. Verse 37, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Remember, Peter's preaching here. Peter saw all of that or much of it. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, and we parked on that last time and uh, talked about the notion of Jesus as judge in uh, all the portions uh, that we could find in the New Testament on that uh, subject. And so we've dealt with that. And then verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So tonight I wanted to focus a little bit more attention on the idea of Jesus not as Lord, uh, not as judge, but as remitter of sins, okay, remitter of sins. Uh, just thinking now when we talk about remit, you might see that on a bill, you know, remit payment at or by this date or something like that. That that remit would then mean that you've paid the bill and you don't owe it anymore. We'll look at remission here just for a moment. If you believe in him, the, the uh, prophets, as the prophets testified, through his name, you will receive remission of sins. Whoever believes in him, okay, whoever will receive that remission. 
This is, as I, I think I alluded to last week, this is ironic because the one who's the judge is also the one in whom, if you believe, you receive remission of sins. It's not two different people, it's one. And so it actually gives us a great deal of confidence because if the judge is the one who is remitting your sin, if the judge is the one doing this with your sins, we'll look at what remission is in a moment in more detail, then you can have a great confidence that it's going to be cared for in the way that the judge thinks is sufficient because he's the judge. (laughs) It's also good news because this judge can be merciful to those who trust in him because he promised to remit the sins of those who believe in him. So he's made the way for that to happen. He has promised that those that come to him will believe in him. And I notice that that is a very broad, open promise. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That's you tonight. That's you. That's you if you're watching online, and thank you for doing that. It's you if you're here tonight. You can receive the remission of sins. Now, I've kind of assumed that you know what remission of sins means, but as I thought about it, I thought, well, that word isn't so self-defining as I might like to uh, think. It's sort of like removal of sin, remission, removal. You can think of it that way, Um, but it's not technically that. It, it does more than just erase sins from our record. It's technically the act, here it is, the definition, the act of freeing one from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. The act of freeing one from obligation or guilt or punishment, and you can translate it in the, with a couple little words, pardon or cancellation. Pardon or cancellation. Read the text with those variations there. This is all one definition. We're trying to just understand the text in this context. This is the the proper definition of the term. It's if you believe in him, you'll receive cancellation of your sins. Your, Your sins will be pardoned. You'll be freed from the obligation laid upon you by your sins. You'll be freed from the guilt. You'll be unloosed from the punishment that is due for the sins. So listen, when you sin, and who among us doesn't sin? When you sin, not if you sin, when, the fact that you sin, that brings guilt, which in turn means that God is legitimately able to punish you for the sin. You can't punish a person that's not guilty of the crime. Well... Yeah, you you can't legitimately do that, but sometimes people do and they're wrong. That incurs on them guilt for punishing somebody who's innocent. The Bible's very clear. You want to only condemn the guilty and you only want to justify the righteous, not the other way around. So you sin, that brings guilt. That means God can punish you for your sin. Just remember that three-step process, okay? Sin brings guilt, brings punishment. Very simple three, you know, three-link chain there. You own the sin. You own the fault. You own the guilt. So you own the consequences and you cannot complain. You know, you're not the one that sets the punishment. I saw a little video clip of a guy yesterday being sentenced for a, a, a kidnapping of a child and 
you know how they add a few other charges on there like I don't know uh, firearms and you know felonious this or assault that or whatever so there's a few of them kind of piled on and this guy gets like 23 years in jail and he's beside himself I mean he, he thought this was the most ridiculous thing that this happened to him now I think the child wasn't killed so that was good but he does not get to set the reasonable punishment. He's the criminal. He might not like it. He might think it's ridiculous, but you know what? It doesn't matter. He's still going to jail for 23 years, you know, perhaps with, you know, whatever, shorter time for good behavior and all that sort of stuff. But he didn't start out very good behavior in the courtroom. He was, he was really acting out because he thought it was a ridiculous level of punishment. But that's not his to determine. The society has determined that, right or wrong, or whatever you might think about that, you're stuck with it. God has set the punishment for sin too. And you might not think it's reasonable, but oh well, you're not, you're not the man that sets the rules. God does. So uh, you've got the sin, you've got the guilt, you've got the uh, liability to punishment. And uh, by the way, this, this, this obligation is objective. This guilt is objective, not necessarily subjective. This means that you might not feel the guilt, but it is true nonetheless. Some criminals don't feel they're guilty about anything, right? But you, when you have sinned, are guilty, and whether or not you feel it you are guilty. Now, you should feel guilt. You should feel it when you are faced with the truth that God calls you to right behavior, right attitude, right thinking. But maybe you don't feel guilt. This makes for a good opportunity for us to ask if you have any felt guilt. I was thinking of churches in the Probably in the 80s and 90s, a lot, there's a lot of talk about felt needs. Churches meeting people's felt needs. Well, how about their felt guilt? We'll meet that need by the gospel. Have you ever felt guilt or fault or blame or culpability? Has your conscience talked to you lately? Have you felt contrition about something? Is your, is your guilt capability? You know, you have a guilt function in your brain, okay? It's called part of your conscience. Is that functioning properly or is it so frozen up that it's unable to feel and, and, uh, and you think you're all right when you're not really all right? You need to unfreeze up that conscience, you know, like I just was working with my dad and unfreezing up the brakes on the back of the van. They wouldn't move properly. Well, as if your conscience is stuck, what did we have to do to work on that? Take it off and bang on it with a hammer and heat it up with a torch and twist it in a vise and finally get it off of there and clean it up on a wire wheel and lubricate it and put it all back together and all that. If your conscience is not feeling and it's frozen and it won't move, man, you might be in a, a world of hurt. You need to do some work and seek to sensitize that conscience so you're not just like, ah, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter that you don't think it doesn't matter. When you face judgment, you're going to be punished anyways. It will matter whether you want it to matter or not. That's the scary thing. So you have to seek to sensitize your conscience so that it will feel guilty when it is guilty. Now, if God then, through faith in Christ, pardons the sin of the guilty who come to him in faith, remember what it says, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. If, Christ, if God does that through faith in Christ, pardons your sin, cancels your guilt, you're no longer liable or subject to punishment for that sin. You're free from obligation. The guilt is removed. The eternal consequences are canceled. Notice I said eternal consequences. Sometimes sin has temporal consequences that you're stuck with and aren't removed. But God graciously even sometimes removes those, some of those temporal consequences. Now, several sermons in the book of Acts conclude with the idea of remission of sins. Let me just touch on a couple of them in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter answered the men when they said, what shall we do? Peter preaching there at the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for or in response to the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 3, a similar mention, Peter says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. That's the same root word or root word system, if you will, of forgiveness that we've looked at. Blotted out means the same thing. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Or Acts chapter 5 Verse 31, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So there's forgiveness, blotting out, remission, all meaning the same thing. Another word for remission is forgiveness. When you run into that in the Bible, just think forgiveness if you forgot all the other stuff that I talked about with regard to the act of freeing from obligation, guilt, or punishment. Um. What else do we have? We have uh, this one in Acts chapter 10, all Peter's preaching. Then we have Acts 13, verse uh, 38. Paul, therefore let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. That's a good word, the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? What we're thinking about tonight, that's the, that's the core of the gospel. Right at the heart of everything. Acts 26, 18. The text tells us to open their eyes. This is Paul's assignment from God. He was delivered from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom he was now sent to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts preaching is loaded with mentions of this. Let me uh, show you something else, too, that was fascinating to me. In the gospel messages, uh, gospel writers here, I'll go to like Mark chapter 1. Mark is uh, known for getting right to the point and uh, keeping things concise. In Mark 1, 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism 
of repentance for the remission of sins. In Luke, similarly in the early part of Luke in chapter 1 and verse 77, uh, Zacharias talks about the uh, prophet of the highest, that is John the Baptist, going before him to give the knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. How did he know this? Uh, he must. He knew it from the Old Testament revelation. He knew it because God was working in him. Uh, and just amazing thinking about the remission of sins. Uh, Isaiah 53, I always go back to that, you know. He's laid on him the iniquities of us all. That means he's unlaid them from us and he's laid them on somebody else. That's forgiveness. Uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse number 3. Jesus, or uh, John rather, went around the region of the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But then if you go all the way to the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24, 47, the gospel ends, that this is kind of amazing actually, and maybe even shocking to some people. The gospel ends as the gospels begin. In Luke 24, Jesus speaks to the disciples saying, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day as he speaks about himself in the third person. And he says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Three and a half years earlier, he began preaching remission of sins. Three and a half years later, at the end, he's telling you, now I want you guys to go and preach the remission of sins. Every every individual human being on this planet needs the remission of sins. And we need to preach that. We need to be ready to say that to folks. I guess what I'm saying is when we look at the preaching and acts, we need to know that we need to tell people that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is judge, and Jesus is remitter of sins. And we need to be insistent about that. Uh, The ordinance of the Lord's table has the blood of the new covenant, Jesus said, which is shed for many for the remission of their sins. So the ministry of Jesus began, ended, and in the middle was all about the remission of sins, the the apostles preaching in Acts, all about remission of sins. Once remission is provided, the author of Hebrews in 10.18 tells us there's no more offering necessary for sin. Once it's done, it's done. We couldn't have another offering for sin after the, the offering of Christ, not in an eternal relationship uh, with, with God. Um, and then, of course, there's all in the epistles, all throughout you have I'll start back in uh, Colossians and just touch on a couple of those for you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, In Him, Christ, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through His blood, that is the forgiveness of sins. A parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of, his, of sins according to the riches of His Grace, and uh, John 20 and verse number 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Um, Luke chapter, uh, let's see, Luke chapter 5. I'm going backwards through the canon here in the order that I put them in my notes. Luke 5 verse 24 but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, get up. 
So there's the same idea, remission, forgiveness of sins. Or Mark chapter 3 and verse number 28. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's an exception case. He does. So both terms here refer to remission and forgiveness, cancellation of debt, pardon. Often the message of, of remission, of removal, of forgiveness, of elimination of grounds to hold sin against someone is, is tied with a call to repentance because repentance is that from which on the human side results in God's extending remission. It's not that repentance, excuse me, cajoles God to, to issue a pardon to us, but that God has pre-promised that he would give forgiveness to anyone who repents. You know, that's, why is that? Well, there, there's something that happens to a person's heart when they repent. It changes so that it becomes a contrite heart. That's the kind of heart that's near to God. It's not the kind of heart that's hard and says, I don't have any sin and not, I don't have any guilt and oh, who needs God and that sort of thing. It's the heart that's contrite. The humble spirit, the lowly, is the one who comes near to God. The forgiven state offers a glorious freedom of conscience. Not a freedom to do more bad and, and just think, well, I can get off easy. You know, I can just do whatever I want. It's not that kind of freedom. This is the freedom of conscience from the gloom of impending judgment into the light of glorious and joyful service to the one who forgave you. Think of the woman who we read about in Luke 7, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before that, who washed Jesus' feet with the tears of her eyes and wiped his feet with the hair of her head. The Lord said she loved much because she was forgiven much. But the one who loves little obviously had been forgiven little, as Simon the Pharisee was uh, well aware, because he had no experience of divine forgiveness. He was as hard-hearted as he was before Jesus came into the house. So if the Lord has forgiven you much, then you will love him much. And if you're a Christian, that is certainly the case, that you will do that. So the remission of sins, that is the kind of central focus for us here. But we must finish the chapter because we've been here five sessions or four at least now. And so we carry on with the last few verses and just the couple moments that we have. Remember, we asked the question at the beginning of this uh, series, if Cornelius was saved before this all began, or if not, and there are, there are people who make a case on both sides, I have tended to believe that he was saved in the Old Testament sense, all else being equal, if the gospel hadn't come, he was evidencing the work of divine grace in his heart already. But now having come, God saw to it the necessary information would flow to Cornelius so that he would be brought up to date. But whether he was heaven-bound before or he got saved just now, it doesn't much matter at this point because he believed the gospel message that Peter preached. It says in verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. 
It's like they were saying, look, Peter, we've heard, we, we know, we, we understand. You don't have to tell us anymore. We understand he came to give remission of sins, that he's the Lord, that he's the judge. We are on board already, 100%. Cornelius believed the gospel message which Peter preached. He received the special ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he was saved. Done, just like that. There's something similar with us. You know, you don't have to worry yourself about a date. You don't have to think about when it was in the past. Uh, I've emphasized this, as you know, from time to time because people struggle with this a little bit. Just ask, do I believe in Christ right now? You young people here, do I believe in Christ right now? I, I, I don't remember if it was 11 when I first believed or 8 or 12 or 15 or whatever, but if you're whatever you are, are you believing in him right now? Do you recognize that whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins? Do you recognize you are a sinner? Do you recognize he is Lord? Do you recognize you don't set the punishment for sin? He does, and you're going to face it if you don't have Christ face it for you. Just answer the question, yes. Do you believe in Christ? Yes, 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 yes. There's no other reasonable thing to do. And you will be saved. Now, Peter may have, we don't have record of this, he may have given more detail on some points, some of which have, has been omitted. And I think he, you know, he stayed there. What does it say? Uh, they asked him to stay a few days. So I suspect he continued to talk to them, and they asked him questions, and they he, you know, they taught him, he, he taught them more about the Lord and everything that he did, and they wanted to know more details, I'm sure. But he certainly spoke no less than what we read here, and probably more. Peter did not finish what he was preaching before the listeners responded in faith. No invitation was necessary. No arm twisting was necessary. No prodding, cajoling, pushing, uh, you know, no sales techniques. You don't have to do that with Jesus. He quote-unquote sells himself. The work that he did is sufficient of itself. This is how a real salvation works. A person's often saved before you can get to the invitation part. They just hear the word and it dawns on them and they realize, oh, that's right. I know that it's true. And God has awakened their soul to righteousness and to eternal life. Immediately, the Spirit of God took up residence in these people. Uh, they didn't have to wait. They didn't have to speak in tongues. They didn't have to be water baptized. They didn't have to make a public profession of faith. Uh, they didn't have to, did I say speak in tongues? Already? They didn't have to do any of that. They did not have to have the laying out of hands. What was necessary was simply belief in Christ. In eleven seventeen, it says, If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could withstand God. Well, he couldn't. So let's read on. It says in verse 45, Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. All the, all the brothers that came with Peter were just floored because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on unclean, you know, swine-eating Gentiles. How could that happen? Well, because it's not that which goes into a man that defiles the man. 
It's that which comes out of his heart that defiles him. So they knew now that the Gentiles had received the Spirit because they saw them evidencing the ministry of the Spirit right then and there, just like at Pentecost some days or months earlier. But they were not accustomed to Gentiles being saved or being right with God. But it shouldn't be a surprise to them, as it shouldn't be to us, that God would work among the Gentiles. Amos 9, Zechariah 2, Isaiah 2, uh, many passages throughout the Old Testament. Remember one time, just not within, within the last few months, I went through a list of at least two dozen passages that talks about how God has promised to give aid to Gentiles. We talked about the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian and all of these ones in the Old Testament that God gave help to, the, to these Gentiles. There's nothing new there. shouldn't be a surprise. So after these people were born again, what's the next step? Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Well, the next step after you believe is to be baptized. So naturally, Peter asked if, is there some hindrance to these people being baptized? And it's really a rhetorical question. There is no hindrance. They received the Spirit just like we did. God has received them just like he received us. They believed in the message of Christ just like we did. Therefore, there was no hindrance. God's non-partiality was proved out. Remember verse 34? I perceive that God shows no partiality. Well, there it was, proved out. And Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name, Acts, or Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And by the way, this does confirm that baptism is a thing. Um, we, I'm just saying that because this morning in our class, we ran into certain uh, sect of Christians who say that baptism is not for us today. We don't do that, they say. Well, we do that because that's clearly taught in Matthew 28 and there's no kind of exegetical hoops and gymnastics that we can successfully pass through in order to make that be part of another age or another law or something like that. So baptism is a thing and these people received it. And these were Gentiles, by the way, who received baptism. Well, uh, we have to close, but I just want to say thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that he included even the Gentiles in this work. I know that encourages our sister whenever I say that, and uh, it encourages me. Um, God is not a respecter of persons. Your ethnicity doesn't uh, provide or cause any hindrance to you to be rightly related to God. You can be any ethnicity, any color, any shape, any size, if there were people on Mars, they could be saved too just the same, okay? There aren't. Don't think there are, but... Uh, you think I'm saying there are people on Mars back there, young man? I got them to pay attention anyway. <laughs> no, all sinners. Whoever believes in him will have remission of sins. That's a, that's a wonderful blessing. Father, thank you for allowing us to look at that tonight and to complete our study for now in Acts chapter 10 and help us as we look at the remaining chapters in the book that we'll glean much good from them uh, as well. 
Lord, we love you and we thank you that you've made a way in your plan both for Jews and Gentiles, and especially regardless of ethnicity or race or whatever you want to call it, nationality, you made a way for sinners. And we just give you thanks for that, Lord. Be magnified because your wisdom is beyond what we can grasp and understand. Thank you for doing that, which was in a way unnecessary for you to do. You didn't have to draw us out of the miry pit, but you did and set us on our on the rock of Christ. Praise to his name, and we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.